Well, hello again. I'm Peter Viss, a senior advisor at Rudd Peterson Public Affairs in Brussels. And I'm going to have a chat with Jill Duggan. Thank you for joining us, Jill. Jill is the executive director of Europe from the Environmental Defense Fund, which is a very big NGO, very well known in the US, but also present in Europe. So thanks for joining me, Jill, for a discussion that we're going to have about something that's a little bit complicated, and that is called the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism. What is it? Well, um, briefly, it's an idea that's been put on the table by the European Commission in its Green Deal, in its European Green Deal proposals. And the idea of the border adjustment mechanism is to somehow levy a charge on imports in order that they be put on the same terms as European production. Europe has its measures which imply certain costs to businesses in Europe that produce products like steel, cement, electricity, and yet those same goods can be imported into Europe without those charges necessarily having been incurred. And the worry is that as Europe increases its climate ambition over time, it will increase the regulatory costs on European businesses. And that there is a sort of anomaly if imports can just come in without those charges. So the border adjustment is really designed to prevent there being any temptation for European companies to relocate outside Europe. Um, and so, in effect, uh, that's the principle of it. Does it sound, Jill, like a coherent idea? I know that we've been talking about this in Europe for about 20 years. In fact, since the carbon price, uh, the EU ETS started back uh, in 2005. And companies have always claimed that they're at a disadvantage compared to imports coming in. And that creates, they would argue, something called carbon leakage, where production in Europe declines and increases somewhere else, where it may be, the argument always was, more carbon intensive. I think there's a couple of things around this. Firstly, there's never been any evidence that, that companies have moved production ab abroad because of the carbon price in Europe or carbon regulation in Europe. And actually, of course, what's happened over the last 20 years is more and more places around the world have introduced restrictions on, on carbon intensity in one way or another. So China, for example, has had regional carbon markets for quite a long time now, now has a national carbon market as of this year. And other parts of the world have followed suit. So, you know, different parts of the US, although the federal administration has not moved forward on that, there are carbon pricing in various bits of the US. And there are other carbon regulations in other places. Of course, it is very uneven. But when you think about the decisions that companies make in order to decide where to produce their goods, it's usually about the available labour and skills, proximity to markets, depending on what sort of good they have, etc. And so a carbon price, you can probably tell me what today's price in Europe is, it's probably somewhere in the 20 euros a tonne. It's more, it's 40, it's closer oh, to... Oh, well done, um, which is what we always intended. But even at 40 euros a tonne, it's not going to be so significant that it persuades, in my view, to persuade um, companies to move their production elsewhere. However, there is also this, this I, I think, allied to the carbon border adjustment mechanism is the idea that you don't allow free riders on this. Yeah. So when you're trying to move the world 
to carbon neutrality and climate neutrality, more importantly, because it's not all about CO2, then you don't want some parts of the world just saying, I don't believe in this, I don't care, I'm going to carry on as normal and getting away with it. And I think that's really important. As time goes forward, I think the idea of the environmental protections and climate protections being part of purchasing agreements is going to become more and more important. And I think one of the things we saw, it was probably the pandemic has thrown my sense of time out completely. So I think it was not last year, but the year before. But France uh, saying to Brazil, we're not going to sign the trade agreement if you don't do something about the fires in the Amazon, I think was enormously powerful. So I think sometimes that high level political messaging is really important. Yeah. Carbon okay. um, border adjustment mechanisms always feel like a, you know, a really complicated way of doing something on this. But I mean, one of the complications you've already touched on is that you've said that uh, some jurisdictions are doing something to address climate change. Um, so it, it would be wrong to assume that all imports are somehow not subject to any carbon constraint. So that makes it complicated, I suppose, differentiating a charge according to the degree of regulatory burden in third countries. Isn't yes. this, could this be biting off more than we can chew? Well, I think there's a further complication as well, Peter, and I think the sort of negotiations in Europe have demonstrated that while particular industries, and I'm going to call out the industries as a whole rather than particular firms, but cement and steel have always said, oh, you know, this is very unfair that, you know, there's imports coming in from such and such and we're having to compete with them. But then as the carbon border adjustment mechanism has been proposed, they've said, well, what the ones that we own overseas should not be subject to this, is my understanding of, of a lot of the debate at the moment, which you think, well, if you always own them, why were you crying foul in the first place? And, and if you're using other parts of the world to produce goods, are you meeting the carbon, you know, you, you have control over this, are you meeting the same sort of carbon constraints that you've had imposed upon you through regulatory or pricing mechanisms in Europe? Or are you producing in a different way? And I know that many of those industries would say, well, actually, our most efficient plant is in Morocco or in Argentina or, or somewhere. So, you know, I think it is a very, very complex question. And there's a very there are very powerful lobbies, um, in particular industrial sectors, that whatever you do seem to cry, cry foul. Um, and actually, they're probably the sectors that really need to think about how to get their house in order and how to show what good looks like. Yeah, I think, as you mentioned, it's often the case that the emerging economies uh, have got more recent equipment than Europe, which, you know, some of our blast furnaces are close to 100 years old or, or perhaps not that old. But, you know, there is we've got legacy assets from decades ago that in some cases are still producing. So it isn't perhaps a given that European producers are cleaner than uh, third country producers. I, I can agree that there's, it's complicated. And I fear that uh, anything that's complicated is hard to explain. Even if there is, there can be a very coherent argument as to why imports might be uh, subject to such a charge, but it's hard to explain and indeed hard to administer because measuring carbon in imported goods is going to either be very complex or it will 
centre around approximations, I imagine, which there will always be claims that those approximations or averages don't apply to this particular consignment or yeah, other. I completely agree. And I think the other problem with these things being becoming very complicated is that the reason that they're being imposed gets lost. And therefore, you don't necessarily get the change in behaviour. You may see that, you know, it may be that imports into the EU go down from certain sectors, but that might mean that there's just, a, you know, less availability and therefore higher prices in Europe because yeah. of standard economics rather than a change in the carbon intensity of some of those incoming goods. So I, I think it's, it's a really complex issue. And I do think that although it's well-intentioned and we know that, you know, we have discussed previously that Europe being a front runner in a lot of climate legislation has often fallen prey to missteps along the way when you're trying to tackle new and difficult problems it's very easy to do something with a, that actually creates an unintended consequence and i think i'm not against carbon border adjustment mechanisms per se but i think they are a very complicated way of tackling an issue that the better way of doing it is trying to firstly ensure that there, there is a more level playing field through other means and also recognizing what is it we're trying to achieve here and that's not just about, you know, creating the, the the price, reducing the price differential between imports and home produced goods, but it's actually about tackling the climate problem. Yeah. And, and you know, so it's, it's thinking about it from a slightly different point of view. Yeah. And so far, um, I think you're right in saying that it's been something that's been sort of considered or it's been a possibility for many years since we've started the emissions trading system in Europe, for example. But we have chosen to address it through the continuation of free allocation to industry sectors who export their goods. And now there's a discussion going on as to whether or not that free allocation can continue or whether it must stop. Everybody seems agreed that it should be WTO compatible. And I do wonder whether or not trade agreements, you mentioned the one with Mercosur that uh, is presently in the process of being ratified by European governments. You know, are trade agreements perhaps another tool that could be used? Indeed, they've been used a little bit so far, but perhaps that's a way of saying, you know, if you're going to have free trade access to our market, we will insist that you commit to Paris, which of course, I think, most countries have done, of course, but implement your commitments under Paris and that sort of degree of conditionality about the free trade. Is that a way forward? I think it's a more powerful way, particularly. So if you think about it, um, for the Mercosur agreement, both Austria, I think, and France have come out and said, you know, you need to tackle things in the Amazon before we're going to ratify this. And I think those political messages alongside the negotiation of a trade agreement are really important and powerful because they make the headlines in newspapers. Another one, again, France, which is particularly strong on this, but has recently sort of said, we will not import LNG from the United States because it's too carbon intensive. It doesn't meet our standards or it's probably methane intensive. But nevertheless, that makes headlines. Can you imagine the difference between the headlines made by France or Austria saying, no, we're not going to ratify, we're not going to buy your goods because compared to a really complicated border adjustment mechanism, which is never going to get reported because it will be too complicated or journalists will feel it's too complicated to explain to their readers. And therefore, it's not going to have that political impact that those trade agreements and the 
messaging that goes alongside them can have. So, you know, I, I do think it's horses for courses. I definitely think that we need to make sure that no company or country is penalised for taking good action. And we need to guard against free riding. But we need to look at pragmatic ways of doing this. That, you know, my, my concern as well is with CBAMs, they are immensely complicated. That takes a lot of administrative time, both to design them and then to implement. And, you know, are there better ways of making sure that the signaling gets across in the right way? And I do think the power of political messaging, the power of trade agreements should not be overlooked. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, just talking about a carbon border adjustment mechanism is thought to have the effect of making all countries think, uh-oh, I better perhaps increase my commitment under the Paris Agreement and we might be qualifying for exemption from it. Because I think there is a premise whereby countries that are doing enough towards their climate commitments wouldn't be subject, their produce wouldn't be subject to this charge when it's imported to Europe. So it might be that just talking about it is of itself some driver for higher global climate ambition. I think that's true, Peter. And I think, you know, what, certainly in conversations I've had in the past, is one of the drivers for some countries deciding to take action and particular action has been their concern about their future market share. But if they go down a particularly carbon intensive route of development in particular, then is that going to restrict market access to them in the future? And I think reinforcing that and also having preferred suppliers maybe, you know, having, you know, who do we like best? Who are doing the right things? Who have got the right commitments here? And that's probably a bit more, you know, because 192 countries did sign up to Paris. It's probably actually making sure that they're delivering on their commitments in Paris and that their commitments are sufficient. You know, so I think there is more that can be done in that way. Now, you, you like I, have spent some of your career in the European Commission. Uh, it is the Commission that has said it will do this border adjustment mechanism and they've promised to make a proposal in June. Have you any sort of suggestions as to how they might do it? I must say that I'm so glad I don't have to do it. I, I must say that. that's one of my because it is it's this is a Pandora's box, really, isn't it? And it's a um, it's going to be extremely difficult for the officials that that need to do it. I think one of the things in their favour is their sort of our capabilities on monitoring, reporting, verification globally are far better. We have technologies that can help us that weren't available to us when we were, you know, designing the UETS and implementing that and, and learning along the way. You know, there's a, a lot more available, but nevertheless, this is complex stuff. And as I said, my, my problem with it is that it takes a lot of intellectual uh, capacity to design these things and then a lot of administrative effort to implement them. And I wonder whether the final impact of that is going to be as sufficient as it could could be achieved through other means. So my my sympathies with all of those who are trying to design a carbon border adjustment mechanism and the you know the broader implications of that, because we've already seen the lobbying saying, well, you know, we should continue to get free allocation in the EU as well. Um, you know, it's it's a difficult negotiating issue as well. I mean, I would think that if it is going to be started. Uh, sooner rather than later, it might start with only a particular selection of goods, um, the most perhaps carbon intensive goods. And goods include electricity, they might include 
other very energy intensive products like cement and steel, but a stepwise approach would seem to me a good one. What bothers me a bit though, is that if I was a third country and I obviously wanted my produce not to be subject to this charge when it was used in Europe, I'd be saying, well, what do I need to do? You know, as a committed European, and you and I both hold Irish passports, but I am sitting here in the UK post-Brexit looking at the shock that has befallen British uh, exporters who thought that they had a trade agreement, but nevertheless, they've got the non-tariff barriers of the administrative difficulties. And you think that is without carbon border adjustment mechanisms. How difficult will it be for third countries in the future? And you know what will be the impact on on trade and overall, and obviously trade creates relationships too. I think it's a really really complex issue that we need to think think about quite carefully. And while the intent I think is very good, I'm worried that the delivery mechanism might be over engineered. Let's say. Well, I think you know the Commission is very good at doing sort of technical stuff, and this is involving very a lot technical. of. <laughs> um, they do it well, I think. And but my worry is that this, in when it comes to the COP, whenever that were to take place next November, as plans are now, it, it's going to be a hard sell in the COP, isn't it? Because the Paris Agreement allows countries to determine their own contribution, and we have sub- subscribed to that bottom-up architecture of the Paris Agreement. And for us. In Europe to say, ah, yes, well, we know you've made a commitment under the Paris Agreement, but actually we don't think it is ambitious enough or it doesn't equate to what we're doing. And therefore, we're going to put a charge on your goods when they come into the European Union. I can see this as being a hard sell for Europe at the COP. And I think, you know, remembering as well that the ambition that countries demonstrate is quite often, you know, I'll do this if you do that. And Europe very much wants to be a leader and has been a leader, let's let's be honest. Europe has been at the forefront of tackling climate change. It's almost, you know, it is a hugely successful part of what the European Union has, has managed to achieve. But if, you know, if the negotiation is we're going to slap a, a tariff on your, your cement, your steel, your whatever, it's going to be make that negotiation harder. And... It really needs to be about, at the particular stage we are with climate negotiations, encouraging positive action rather than penalising the free riders. And particularly when we're doing it in what is going to be an administratively quite burdensome way. And I do think it's well-intentioned. I do think that we will come to a point where, you know, how we trade and the extent to which we trade goods that have different climate impacts will have to be taken into account. And I think it's good to open the discussion. As you said, there is some benefit just to talking about it. But I think we ought to recognise that at the moment, until we have encouraged others and helped others, because a lot of this is going to be about the finance that the developed world provides to the developing world, to encourage them to move forward and to help them develop in a way that is compatible with a net zero or carbon neutral climate neutral achievement by middle of the century, um, which is why the UK hosts are in a particular tricky position at the moment, having cut their overseas aid. But, you know, it's going to be really important to encourage others rather than penalising them when they haven't had the means yet 
yeah. to take the actions that need to be taken. So I think it's a discussion to open. It's a, to me, it's a bit like CAP reform, common agricultural policy reform. You need to talk about things for about seven years before they happen. We've been talking about carbon border adjustment mechanisms for a long time. The world has moved and it's moved in the direction of the European Union on this, largely, not completely, over the last 20 years. But I do think, you know, our understanding of what we need to do and when we need to do it has improved in that time. And our understanding of what others need to do and how we can help them has also improved. So I think, you know, this is an important discussion, but in my view, it would be a tricky time to implement it. Perhaps this is a task for the WTO to itself uh, develop. And I think the new Director General will perhaps be wanting to talk more about the environmental conditionalities of trade so that it's done in an orderly way and not a dispersed way. It just seems to me to have a logical case for having a border adjustment, but in, and insofar as it in, enables the European Union and others to be more ambitious, so much the better. But it also has the makings of a something that will be disruptive of the negotiation process that might be taking place in Glasgow in November, if yeah. it isn't in a very sensible way. Of course, a legal proposal by the Commission isn't a law. It doesn't start applying from that moment onwards. There is a negotiation to be had. But of course, the negotiation is one between European Union member states and institutions. And it would seem to me essential to engage with the wider international community as well, not least because it will impact them in strange ways where steel produced in a developing country or emerging economy like India might actually be generate revenues that would be paid to Europe. And that's a little bit odd. Yeah. You know, rather than the other way around. And I think but, also looking at, at, you know, certainly big multinational companies who are increasingly looking at their whole supply chains and also how they can help their supply chains. So I think, you know, the sort of broad trade agreement approach, which says, look, you know, we have concerns about some of the things that you're doing in your jurisdiction, whether it's the burning of the rainforests or it's the production of this, that or the other, I think is a more useful and constructive way of tackling this issue at the moment. And it's it's kind of what's appropriate when. And I think we're also, we're looking at, you know, we're trying to tackle a couple of issues with carbon border adjustment mechanisms. One is the perception, rightly or wrongly, and in my view wrongly, that we, we lose jobs in Europe to other parts of the world that don't have the same restrictions on carbon intensity and, and the production of goods as we do. And I think if you were a company looking to relocate for that reason, you've got a diminishing number of options before you. And actually, one of the things that I've always thought is, at least in Europe, you know that they're going to be strong on this, you know, you know, and, you know, particularly for um, goods that have a ready market there, you know what you're facing and therefore you can invest against it. If you try and relocate elsewhere, you're at an earlier stage of the process and you don't know what regulations you might face. So for me, that's a very strong argument against carbon leakage. I do think, as we've said, you know, that from a encouraging good behaviour and using trade measures and trade agreements at the moment to encourage that good behaviour and to work with others and with supply chains to develop good ways of doing things that are less damaging to the planet and to the climate is to be encouraged. But, you know, I'm not sure this is the right way to do it. 
Okay, well, thanks very much, Jill. I think that was a quick uh, tour of this, of this, of the pros and the cons about the carbon border adjustment mechanism. But thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks.